Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Special Guest Rob Bergerman, Divisional Director at Bruin Dolphin. The pound's dramatic plunge against the dollar at the end of last week may have grabbed headlines, but if you're an investor, you need to take note of a wide range of various factors, rather than just the ones which make the news. Kate, you do a roundup every month of the key moves and developments investors should be aware of. So what have been the issues of real consequence for investors? Well, I guess this month, the the really interesting, or last month, I should say, the really interesting story was the reversal in government bonds. It's been kind of years now, in fact, of bonds going up and up and up, and and we keep thinking that they're unsustainably high. But it was last month when actually that really turned around. And the trigger has been people feeling that central bank easy money policies are just coming to an end. So in Japan, we've had kind of rising bond prices for a while, yields falling. But there are now concerns that actually Bank of Japan's about to call time on its bond buying program. And so we saw that reverse, yields rose. Um, same happened in the ECB. No new stimulus added on the 8th of September meeting. And again, yields rose. And also in the UK, um, Theresa May has actually been speaking out against uh, the kind of QE policies that we've had. She, she kind of said some harsh words about those in her speech recently. And the yield on 10-year UK gilts climbed above 1% for the first time in two months. And this is quite a dramatic shift, really, because we have had this incessant kind of push down on yields. So that reversal is is quite a big deal. Um, corporate bonds, though, a different story, because the Bank of England has come out and said it's going to buy more of those. Uh, so in fact, corporate bonds are in demand, and the price on those is rising. Meanwhile, other things to take account of are Obviously, the kind of stratospheric rise of the FTSE, which is linked to that um, push down in sterling. And that kind of that's come off a bit in recent days, but that has been a really strong move. Um, so it, it does feel like it was quite a kind of uh, a month where things are turning around, particularly with bonds, but related to that, a real shift in the sectors that have been performing. So I think we are starting to see maybe an end to the outperformance of those uh, defensive but very expensive sectors like utilities, like consumer staples, and maybe in relation to yields rising on bonds, that's been falling away. And we start to see technology outperform um, financials a little bit, some of these riskier sectors. So maybe we're on the brink of quite an interesting shift. Okay, um, this is obviously how things are happening at a very high level. So drilling down to what affects investors, how's it affected funds? Um, well, predictably, September's worst performing open-ended fund sectors were targeted absolute return, sterling high yield, sterling strategic bond, um, sterling corporate bond and UK gilt. So all of those bond areas um, and some of the best performing sectors were those ones I just mentioned. Um, so, and in fact, the best performing sectors were, were actually Japan um, and you had International Biotechnology Trust up there as well. So it, it's kind of those those macro factors playing into the funds there. Okay. And um, in Japan, were there any funds that did particularly well? Uh, so Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon has done well. That's a closed-ended um, 
trust invested in smaller companies. Okay. All right. Well, that all sounds interesting. But um, I think the important question is what's going to happen next? So what do investors need to be aware of going forwards? Well, I think the the interesting thing here is whether or not we're about to get a shift in investing style or in the kind of stocks which are outperforming. Um, So as I said, up till now or for a while now, we've had what people refer to as bond proxy stocks doing very well, these kind of quality income defensive stocks. Um, So it's been the kind of growthier managers who have been outperforming. But there is a chance that that might now shift, particularly if bond yields do continue to rise. And then we might have some kind of value managers starting to outperform again in um, the UK, in the US and in Europe as well, potentially. Okay. Um, Rob, do you think value investing is going to make a comeback? What some investors will tell you, value never goes out of fashion. So Warren Buffett's always been a, renowned as being one of the great deep value investors. But but value, I think, as part of a balanced portfolio, value always has a has a role to play. Okay, um, Kate, if you're going to do the value thing, what kind of funds could you look to? Uh, well, in the U- UK, we've got Investec UK Special Situations. Um, there's also funds like ManGLG Undervalued Assets. LNG UK Alpha. Okay. Rob, are there any value funds that you particularly like? Yeah, I was going to, funny enough, most of those. Uh, but the Investec UK special situation, I think Simon Brazy is a good, long-standing fund manager. Again, deep value, but a great long-term track record. Okay. Now, just turning to another matter that's affecting investors, Rob, what's your view on inflation? Because there has been talk about, you know, whether that come or not come. Is it time to take out protection? Well, another big feature, I think, of the last few weeks and in bond markets particularly has been uh, gilts have, have gone down, gilt yields have gone up, but actually index-linked gilts have held their value remarkably well. And that, I think, is a function of the role that a weakening sterling has on UK prices. I mean, you know, we, we, we're not food independent. We import a lot of food. We import a lot of, well, you know, we don't import Marmite, but we do import, <laughs> we do import quite a lot of other bits of food. Yeah. Um, and we import fuel. And so I think most uh, projections are that inflation will certainly rise next year. The question is by how much current forecasts range between sort of two and a half and three and a half percent, which is historic, you know, well, it's not, not high historically, but it is by recent history standards. So for for people to become blasé about inflation, I think, is the is the biggest danger. Some of some of some mm. of the reports I've read in the last week have talked about the the people are, are underestimating potentially what, what, what effects inflation could have. Okay. I mean should they start protecting themselves and what kind of assets and funds would be good for um, protecting against inflation? Well typically it's assets where which which are going to rise uh, with inflation. So I- I- in that instance, um, conventional UK government bonds, of course, do not offer you any inflation protection. And you'd argue that with tying up the money for uh, even mm. even here at just over 1% for 10 years, to, to lend money to someone for 10 years at 1.1%, you know, you might want to borrow it for 10 years at 1.1%, but lending it, not so sure. And we're not so sure that actually, in real terms, it represents value. So should people be looking to gold or infrastructure or is anything... Gold, gold has a role, infrastructure has a role. But, I mean, there, yeah. there's, there's lots of other assets. There's property, mm. there's equities. I mean, the, the right mix mm. is, is, I think, the important thing. Uh, the problem you have with equities is, is you get a degree of volatility, which isn't necessarily always um, always welcome. But but even but, but property, uh, 
commercial property, particularly, I would suggest, or an infrastructure, stuff like that. I think these are all good, good, solid long-term assets to own. Okay, thanks, Rob and Kate. Some interesting ideas. Now, this week's portfolio clinic features a retired reader who wants to use his investments to supplement his pension income and pay off his mortgage. He wants to have an income focus, but his portfolio includes a number of so-called cyclical or economically sensitive investments, including some house-building shares. Rob, you were one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio. So first of all, what are the risks of holding these kind of investments? Well, by their nature, cyclical investments, uh, their profitability rises and falls along with the, the, the wider economy. Um, I wouldn't like to leave you with the impression that, that you never want to own cyclical investments. You do, but the point is that because they're cyclical, generally unless unless there is a long-term trend, um, then there are points of the cycle in which you want to own them and points at which you don't want to own them. As part of a balanced portfolio, that's fine, but if all you've got is cyclical investments, then you've got a degree of, again, back to volatility again. You've got volatility in, in, in your portfolio of investments, which might or might not be what you actually want. Okay. Picking up on the volatility point, should people in retirement looking to generate income have any exposure at all to cyclical investments? Yeah, as part of a balanced portfolio. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's, it's you know, generally the, the price, the compensation for owning cyclical investments is that they generally have pay, pay reasonable dividend yields. But but dividends, we, you know, we, we, we've had a fairly benign environment for the last eight to ten years mm. um but if you've got a longer memory you'll know that sort of that dividends can fall as well as rise they're not they're, they're a distribution of profits and if you end up with a, an industry which is uh, unprofitable mm. then dividends generally are the first thing that gets cut on that note um as well as house building shares this investor in this week's portfolio clinic has a direct holding in a US listed oil company. What are the risks of direct exposure to an oil company and in particular one listed overseas? Depends very much on what kind of company it is. I mean if if it's if it's if it is the US equivalent of BP or Shell, if it's if it's Exxon or Chevron, you know, one of the one of these big sort of um multinational companies, then frankly in an industry which is as global as the oil industry uh, where the drivers are, are are no different really to 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 those drivers affecting BP and Shell. There's not a great deal more risk involved than owning BP and Shell. If it's an oil explorer, or if it's uh, if it's uh, an oil sands explorer, or or a fracking type company, then clearly the risks are, are entirely different. Um, equally, you get different standards of corporate governance as well, which is also something to be aware of. You know that that, that uh, certainly, as far as uh, U.S. investments go, you don't. In the U.K., you have a concept of um, preemptive rights, which is you you can't simply find that your shareholding is diluted. Mm. Um, you have to. So, if a company were were needed to raise money and it raised it from equity shareholders, you, as an existing holder outside the A market, this is, are uh, have. Right, so that you can maintain your economic interest. In the US, you can find that you're holding, you, you just get diluted. You, mm. you suddenly find that, that, you know, you owned, let's say you owned 1% of the company, that 1% can become 0.1% if the company mm. raises a lot of money. So there, there, there are those kind of dangers. Yeah. Would it be also fair to add that if you buy foreign shares directly, there could be some 
and um, unpleasant tax consequences compared to buying, you know, something from the UK. Well, we have dual taxation treaties with a lot of companies, okay. but but there's certainly there's certainly a, a, a raft of paperwork that goes mm, with that, and particularly yeah. our favourite, the the W eight Ben form, which is for something that the US tax authorities insist is filled in, and it can complicate, of course, your tax returns. Mm. Um, but but no, yes, you're right. I mean, the, the, it's where, if we don't have dual taxation treaties, then then clearly that's an issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, turning to what might be better, what are suitable assets and funds for generating an income in retirement? The point I think here is that it's only when you get to the end of the journey that you're you can look back and say, "Oh, that was that was exactly what we wanted to own." Hindsight, exactly. And, and so, yeah. so, so the correct investment mm. is, of course, the hindsight fund, which, which, which you know, we all we all want a bit of the hindsight fund. Um, but the only way you could, then you can protect yourself against that is through diversity and diversity of funds, diversity of of, of investment styles, and diversity of of of, of asset types. So within that, so from my point of view, I would suggest that for somebody looking to secure an income in retirement, equity is is, is a perfectly good place to to get some income from, to try and generate some capital growth from, but it's not the only place. And equities are inherently volatile. There are less volatile assets. We talked before just now Mm. about sort of commercial property. There's property, there's infrastructure, there are the kind of sort of student accommodation funds, there are, um, there's private equity funds that that pay income. And and these all sort of march to a slightly different beat to the equity markets. If you can find something which is less correlated with equity markets, then that should smooth the returns out, which, which, and actually equally is not likely to, to find itself potentially sort of falling out of bed one day. In the event of a nasty moment. Yeah. What would be good at the moment? Because people used to go for bonds, but people can sell a bit bonds. So. The trouble with bonds at the mm. moment is if you're looking to secure an income in retirement, I mean, bond, bonds bonds still have a role to play in the in the sense of providing some protection against inflation, for example. I mean, in, in, in the index-linked bonds, inflation-linked bonds can do that. They're not going to provide you very much in the way of income, though. Mm. What they do, however, provide is ballast, and they provide yeah. some sort of... Uh, Go slower stripes, if you like, to sort of the the volatility of the portfolio. So they still have a, still have a role to play. Never, I wouldn't underestimate bonds. But mm. historically, you know, the rule used to be when I many years ago uh, was you buy bonds for, for for income and equities for growth. And it's mm. sort of not really that way anymore because mm. there's not much income from bonds. And well, there we are. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, turning to this reader's expectations, he said he wanted to generate an income of four point five percent. Is this realistic in the current investment climate and his potential time frame? The the key here, I think, was that last point you made, which is time frame. Um, can you generate an income yield of four point five percent? Yes, you can. Um, can you generate four point five percent and also maintain the value of the capital in real terms? Uh, that's that's an altogether different question. And I'd suggest that I think the reader here was 61. So, I mean, sure, I mean, if you've, if you've got a best before date or a use by date and we can draw a line between today and that date, then, then you can quickly work out how much money you need. Most of us don't have that. Um, at 61, actuarially, you might have 20, 25 years at least. Uh, and in fact, reality is, I think, more likely you could have 30 years plus. So the pernicious effects of inflation can very quickly erode the the, the capital value uh, and 
if the capital value is eroded in real terms, the income you're getting from that will also be eroded in real terms. So, so naturally, as you get older, y- your need for excess return diminishes. But at 61, I think you're, you, one of your key things should actually be to try and maintain, make sure that the capital at least is keeping pace with inflation. I mean, by way of example, you only have to look back to, and I'm not suggesting this is going to happen tomorrow, but look back to 1970 when £10,000, £12,000 would buy you a nice car, a nice house, sorry. (laughs) By 1980, it would buy you a nice car, but it wouldn't buy you a nice house. Now, Mm. I don't think we've got that kind of Mm. situation coming in the next two, three, four years, but I wouldn't swear to you you're not going to get it in the next 10 or 15 now, um, turning to one of his uh, other points, he said you wanted to use the investments in his portfolio to pay off his mortgage, but you actually expressed a concern about this. Why? There has to be a difference between the risk that you're happy to take and the risk that you can afford to take. In this case, it's important that the most important thing is actually ultimately that mortgage will need to be paid off. And how are you going to do that? If you're going to do it with a capital sum here from the portfolio, what time frame are you going to do that within? I have a, a, a mythical jumbo jet that flies round and round, and occasionally it sort of plunges into the White House. And, and if it were to do that, it's a fairly safe bet to say that a portfolio of predominantly equity-based investments would be worth significantly less after that. Now, if your time frame's long enough, and clearly the time, you, have the time, you have the time frame here potentially – but do you have any other source of capital that you could call on to pay off that mortgage? And the answer, I don't think, is yes. At which point, then, you have to sort of think, well, if the if the capital value were to go down by 50%, unlikely, but let's deal with extremes, mm. where does that leave you? Where does that leave your reader? Not in a good place, I would suggest. So mm. then, notwithstanding the fact that interest rates are very low and that you've got potentially good returns, it still it still represents a risk and a risk that you know you, you, the reader has to be comfortable with personally would i want to do that no i wouldn't mm. I, I would suggest either paying some of the mortgage back and just reducing that then then you've got your your capacity for loss which is the buzzword of the week but it's uh, but it's a very real concept and a really, really important concept your your capacity for loss then goes a bit higher then you can afford to take a little bit more risk with the money Okay. Now, one of the other commentators suggested that as interest rates are very low and debt is cheap, rather than paying off the mortgage, it could be better to invest if you can earn a higher rate of return from your investments than you're paying in interest. What are your thoughts on this strategy? Well, I think I'd describe it as pulling up at the edge of the cliff with your wheels smoking doesn't really (laughs) feel like a great basis for an investment strategy. Frankly, interest rates are very low at the moment. If this sterling crisis degenerates further and the Bank of England is forced to put up interest rates, that might coincide with markets also falling. You could find yourself then in a position where your mortgage is going up, your investments are going down, dividends are being cut, so your income is going down. Does this feel like a good place to be? I think not. Now, so although interest rates are very low, and I quite accept that, and, and it may they may carry on low for a while longer. And I think the Bank of England would be very keen to keep interest rates as low as possible for as long as possible to try and mitigate the uh, the negative effects on the economy, not necessarily of Brexit, but of the whole uncertainty created by Brexit. But their hand might be forced. OK, thank you, Rob. Some uh, helpful suggestions. Now, when a high-profile fund manager leaves his position, it attracts a tremendous amount of attention. And when he joins another firm and launches a new fund, if anything, it gets even more attention. A current case in question is James Harries, 
after leaving Newton Global Income Fund following many years of strong returns, is to manage Troy Asset Management's forthcoming Trojan Global Income Fund. Rob, James had a good track record at Newton, but there are going to be some differences in the way that he runs his new fund. Do you think he can replicate his success at Newton Global Income? It almost looks like a marriage made in heaven, doesn't it? Because I think Trojan have always been a sort of very sort of private, private office style of management, very much um, uh, real return orientated. You've got a fund manager who's got a good long term track record in in delivering solid returns. I think, you know, it looks interesting. I mean, it looks like it looks like a nice sort of uh, a very nice fit. Are you concerned that you will be running the new fund along some slightly different lines to the old one? Well... (laughs) It, it, it's, it's not quite it's not quite the stark change that mm. you saw with Anthony Bolton yeah. going from running UK value to, to running Chinese, Chinese special growth. situations. Yeah. You know that that, yeah. that was quite a big leap. This isn't yeah. this isn't quite such a, a, mm. a giant leap. And the, and the mindset I suspect will be more that kind of total return type mindset, mm. which goes with equity income. In some I ways, think it yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, just more generally, when a successful fund manager moves on, do you think you should always follow? Depends. No, you can't generalise like that. Uh, mm. I wish you could. Um, depends very much on the house. Yeah. Some some house styles are very star man orientated. At which point, if your star manager were to leave, then then you know, yes, I think you do need to probably have a bit of a root and branch review of of who's coming in and you know. If, however, it's more of a sort of research based, team based mm. approach. Which you can find at houses like Aberdeen, Aberdeen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aberdeen, so perhaps, or sort of thread, thread needle to some yeah. extent. Then, then you know, yes, yes, it's it's then mm. it's as much about the teamwork as it is about about the the the, the organisation or the yeah. staff manager. I mean, on that note, um, the fund that James Harris left behind, Newton Global Income, is it still worth consideration? Because obviously, Newton are a house that, let's say, say they follow a team, a kind of strategy, yeah. a house strategy rather than individual yeah, style. Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the nice thing about so, mm. so going from a sort of style type approach at Newton to mm. a star type approach, you know, the star might change, but mm. he's, he's still got that sort of MO in yeah. place. But I think... Yeah, Newton as a whole, they are. I mean, they are an organisation you would think of as being sort of mm. much more, much more structured. Yeah. Much, much, so, so you would hope then, and again, you still have to put it on the watch list, mind. Mm. But you would hope that sort of somebody new coming in, it's sort of. I'm not quite saying unplug one fund manager and plug a new one in, but yeah. but but it would be easier to do that than it would say to replace someone like Nigel Thomas at uh, Axe of Hamilton. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Rob. And you can see more details on how James Harvey's will run his new fund and our interview with him in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. That brings us to the end of this week's show. So it just remains to thank Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Investors Chronicle, and Rob Bergerman, Divisional Director at Bruin Dolphin. Find out more about how markets are affecting your money, Generating an Income in Retirement and Troy Asset Management's forthcoming Global Income Fund in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.